Having lived in the United States for a few years now, two things I have learned are that there's this thing called politically correct. That's, that's the politically correct. You, certain things that they may even be true, but you just can't say. It's really bad, especially if you're a younger person. But the other thing I have learned is, I don't know exactly the age when this happens, but it gets to a point in your life where you get old enough and you earn the privilege, I want to say, you earn this right to, to say those things, and the reaction is completely different. People would just hear the same thing that I said. It would be terrible if I had said it. And they would just say, ah, he's just old. <laughs> so I guess something to look forward to as, as I continue here in the United States. But the reason I mention this is because John here, as he's writing this first letter, First John, he's around 80 years old. He's an old man. And as Pastor Lehman pointed out to me yesterday, um, while I mentioned that he was very blunt, and, and that's part of what I'm trying to get at here, uh, he's old and pretty blunt. He's not going around. There, there are these false teachers out there teaching things not according to the apostolic teaching and to what Jesus had taught him. And John is not playing with that, but he's just going straight to the point saying, that's heresy. That's not a good thing. Uh, and Pastor Lehman pointed out to me that, on the other hand, uh, he, he may have been blunt doing this, but tradition holds that John was known as the apostle of love. And at the end of his life, uh, tradition holds that he would be carried from church to church uh, by believers, and he would keep saying to them, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. So if, if John is being blunt here, I don't think it's for lack of love. And, and more than anything, the reason we listen to what John is saying here is not because of his wisdom getting older or this right he has earned to be blunt, but first of all, because this is the infallible, authoritative, and powerful word of God, and we need its instruction that comes from the Holy Spirit so that we can live our lives and glorify Christ with it. So let's bow our heads before we get to it and ask for God's blessing. Lord, we pray that you bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would bless the hearing of your word, and we pray that you bless all of us as we put to practice what is being said in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John, as I said, is not playing with this heresy that is started in the first century called, called docetism. This was an idea coming from these false teachers that Jesus didn't really have a body. Jesus wasn't fully man as taught in the scriptures, but he, the reason he could do all those wonderful things, the miracles, and the reason he could uh, explain the law and the teaching in, in, in a different way that no one could be compared to him, the reason he was matchless in, in all aspects of his teaching and ministry was because he was just a spirit. He was part of the spiritual world, not part of this physical world fallen, uh, where our matter and, and everything that we can touch, these things are evil. So he couldn't be part of it. And John starts his Latin by saying something completely opposed to this. If you go to the very first verse of this whole letter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked, and have touched with our hands 
concerning the word of life. John here is making very clear that these false teachers are teaching something contrary to what had been received by them from Jesus Christ and what had been learned uh, through the apostolic teaching. But more than that, these men moved on from that, and and then especially in the second century, you you start having this new idea of Gnosticism. Uh, It's this idea of, of a high knowledge that some believers had this experience with Christ, this high knowledge would come to them, and that was part of the spirit of, of the spiritual Christ. And with the high knowledge, they didn't really have to obey God in the body. It, it, see, it doesn't really matter because your body is corrupt. Your body is not really part of who you are in Christ. The spiritual part is, is part of Christ. But your body is just part of this fallen world. And in that sense, you could just live a life in, in the way you want it. And you could still be a part of the world and live like the world and do things in this life like the world, and you still belong to Christ. And John here, in this passage, chapter 3, is very blunt about that. If you live a life of no regard for God's law, if you live a life where all you do is sin and there's no sign of any righteousness in your life, he says, you belong to the devil. And that's what we read here in John chapter 3. And John is, is very careful as he's uh, crafting this whole idea, and he wants us not to be deceived in any way. It's actually interesting that when we look at verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3, which is what we're focusing on today, these verses, uh, there's several verses here, but there's only one command, uh, one imperative verse in this whole section, which comes in verse 7, when John writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. It's a command. Don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you. And everything that's built around this verse is about teaching us three things. Here's the three things that John does not want you to be deceived. He says, first of all, don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you. There are only two groups in this life. There are only two categories of people when it comes to eternity uh, matters. And the first one is the group of the devil, the one of those who sin. The second one are those who do righteous deeds. Those are the two groups. Not only there are two groups, but literature, don't be deceived. These two groups have two completely different heads. One of them is the devil who always lies. He's been lying from the beginning. The second group is the group of the Son of God who is pure and righteous. And all that he does is against sin. You can live a life of sin and belong to him. And thirdly, Little children, let no one deceive you. There's true power in the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. There's true power and life change in coming to Christ. It's not just something in the realm of ideas. It's not just in a spiritual idea. But there's true righteousness that comes to your life, true change, because of the great power of the salvation in Jesus Christ. So those are the three things we'll be looking at today. And... Um, the first thing I want us to understand is what we see, is what he means here in verse 4. Uh, in verse 4, he starts saying, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And this expression, the one who keeps on sinning, the one who makes a practice of sin, is not someone who lives alive for the glory of God. It's not one who is truly saved and is pursuing obedience to the law of God, and yet you still sin. In other words, 
John is not requiring to, of the Christian that he would be sinless or perfect. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is because that would be a contradiction to what he has taught us before. If we go back to chapter 1, the very end of it, verses 8 and 9, John says, this is 1 John 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar. And his word is not in us. So what John is saying here is not that he expects you to live a life of no sin at all. We know that in this life we will uh, commit sins. And that's why in chapter 2 he makes that very clear as well, explaining why even he's writing this to us. Uh, Chapter 2 verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The reason I'm giving instruction, the reason why I want you to receive God's word is because you need instruction. You need to be guided in a way you will behave yourself uh, being part of the family of God. However, he continues, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the whole world. So we are here in the name of Christ, and, and John understood very well that we're justified by faith alone. But his point here is, if you truly came to this experience of knowing Jesus, you have, will have your life changed, different than what the false teachers were saying in the beginning of the first century. And if you think that this is something old from the first and second century, uh, maybe... Um, in, in a more modern uh, time, you have heard of, of, of things like, have you, have you prayed the prayer, right? Have you had this experience with Jesus? As long as you pray the prayer, you know, I don't really care how you live. As long as, have you prayed the prayer? And, and that kind of thinking is still part of our society today. And G, uh, John is admonishing us here saying, little children, let no one deceive you. No one who practices lawlessness belongs to God. So, John, um, in this first part, let's get to the, the first command. There's only two groups. The, and we see that in, in verses 4 and 10. As we will notice, we're building back the way he structures his, his chapter here, is that from verses 4 through 10, the main commandment is in verse 7, and then the arguments are, they're parallel arguments being built toward that commandment in the middle. So let's start looking at verses 4 and 10. In verse 4, as we read, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, which doesn't mean sinless life, but it means someone who is striving to obey the law, of, uh, who is completely disregarding the law of God, that person also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There are only two groups. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Or when we look at the church, we don't have the lay people and, and, and then deacons and elders. That's not how it's categorized. But there are only two groups, those who practice lawlessness and those who practice righteousness. But secondly, now he moves on to explain to us what the, what the difference is between these two groups. 
So the first group is the ones, the group that belongs to the devil. And the, the way John is analyzing the situation is the way that Jesus had taught him uh, during his ministry. So many years before here, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, John had, had learned from Jesus himself that you will recognize them, the, the, the true disciples of Jesus, by their fruits. And even the true teachers of God, you, you judge them by their fruits. And what John is, ha, had learned from Jesus here, and I think that's the same thing he applies to us as he's writing First John, is that the fruit is just, it, it may sound obvious, but the fruit is just consequence of the nature of that tree. And it may sound very obvious, but how many of us have bought into that idea, and, and the world is always trying to push on us this idea that man is mostly good. We're inherently good, but we have some flaws here and there. And, and there's this tendency to call sin either a disease or to call sin just, no, this is just consequence of how I grew up. This is just fruit of certain experience. And sometimes we, we think that we're sinners because we commit sin. Where the Bible teaches that actually is the other way around. And, and John will make that very clear here. This fruit is only demonstrating the sort of root that is in the bottom of that tree. And, and, to, and, and, and then, because you're born as a sinner, you sin. The sinner cannot do anything else but sin. And that's an important distinction to make. That's why he, he can be so assured of this analysis that he's making here of who, who belong to each side. Because the Christian, as he'll say later, will practice righteousness. Where those who belong to the devil will act like the devil. And uh, as he learned in Matthew chapter 7 that he recognized them by their truths. He analyzes even the devil himself that way. If you go to the Gospel of John, so this is written many, many years uh, before 1 John. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, these are the words of Jesus talking to the Pharisees, those who are, of course, uh, unbelieving Pharisees. He says, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. See, th this is the pattern that John is showing us here, that like father, like son, um, you act according to your family. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Do you see that pattern here again? There's no truth in him, and because of that, all that he does is lie. There's no lie in him. There, there's no truth in him. He, does never, he never stands in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, this is 2 verse 44, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. So the devil acts the way he acts because it's in his nature to act that way. He's called the evil one. Uh, also in the Gospels, when Jesus is teaching us his prayer. And, and, and that's the head, then, of this first group who practices uh, lawlessness, as the devil practices lawlessness. But now let's move to the second group. If, the, if, if this group is all about sin, what is then the Son of God? What is the group of the Son of God about? And we start seeing this in verse 5. In verse 5, John writes... Uh, in him, the second part, in him there's no sin. So if the devil is all sin in his character, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous, has no sin. Uh, if you go back to verse, one, uh, verse 3, in verse 3 we read, And everyone who does hopes in him, in, in Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. So he, there's no sin in him. He's absolutely pure. And, and now let's look at what he does. So if this is his character, he's pure. He is sinless. What comes out of his actions? Well, verse 5 tells us, you know that he appeared, this first, talking about his first coming, to take away sins. The very reason Jesus came into the world was to take away our sins. If we go back to the Gospels, the, the reason Jesus is called Jesus, which means Savior, uh, we, we read in Matthew 1, chapter, uh, verse 21, the angel comes to Joseph and says, uh, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was the very reason why he was named Jesus, because that was the purpose of his life and, and his ministry, was to save his people from their sins. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist sees him for the first time and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was the whole point of Christ's ministry. He came to accomplish, to destroy the works of the devil, which is exactly what we read in verse, um, in verse 9. Um, in, in verse 8, sorry. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this is, of course, in reference to his first coming. But not only his first coming, his second coming, we look back to verse 2, is also related to that. It says in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who does hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. His pure righteousness. His first coming was about righteousness, was about destroying the works of the devil. It was about freeing us from sin. The second coming is about the complete deliverance uh, from sin uh, of the world and, and, and all of us who hope in him. So you can see the contrast between the two. And, and, and John wants to make it very clear here. Let no one deceive you, brethren. If you say you belong to Christ, you cannot belong to Christ and live a life of lawlessness. You cannot love sin and stay in your sin, remain in your sin, if you belong to this Jesus. In 1 John, uh, now if you move one chapter ahead, chapter 4, verse 4, John writes, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So as, as a pastor uh, who, who I like to listen, likes to say, uh, if there is a battle between the devil and the Son of God, Guess who wins once a day, every day, and twice on Sunday? <laughs> that's what he likes to say. And, and of course, there's power. And, and that's the third point John is making here. He's saying, let no one deceive you. There's great power in belonging to the family of God. Greater is he who is in you than the one who is in the world. And, and that's the third thing we're looking here, the power of the new birth. Uh, I want you to notice this expression here found in verses uh, 9 and 10. So, verse 9, no one born of God, notice this, this expression, it's very important and it appears twice. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed 
abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The new birth is powerful. The new birth is very powerful. And one of the problems I believe we, we have today, and this is actually something that the, the reformers were very careful in, in making a distinction, uh, a distinction and yet showing how connected they, these things are, a distinction between justification um, and, and regeneration and adoption and all those different aspects of salvation that we see in the Bible. And they were very careful to show that, if, that we're saved by grace alone. It's a gift of God. There's no merit. You don't work anything to earn your salvation. You're justified by faith alone. And it's, it comes by grace. It's not your own doing. It's in Christ alone. There's no other, other object. There's no other name by whom anyone can be saved. Only the name of Jesus Christ. It's by grace. It's in Christ. And it's by faith alone. And that's a wonderful thing that we have that. But the reformers also made sure that we would understand that that faith, which, that salvation, which comes from faith alone, never remains alone. And that was a big part of the Reformation as well, is to understand that salvation is by faith alone, but this salvation truly regenerates you. That's the, the theology of the new birth. And it's a problem when you try to separate and, and you try to maybe overstate or, or overemphasize justification and you forget the other doctrines of union with Christ or adoption, the new birth, where the Spirit of God, God doesn't come and justifies you so that you can go back to your old life and to your old sins and to live in your misery you were living before. But he comes to actually change who you are from your very nature. And, and, and now you're regenerated. You have, you're, it's a new birth. And we'll see that there's so much to this picture of a new birth here in the scriptures. Uh, uh, looking verse, if, if you go back to verse, um, verse 6, John says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. These two verbs here, to see and to know, uh, it's, it's a tense that we, we don't have in English uh, called the perfect tense. And, and it's this idea of something that happened in the past once. It's an event that happened in the past, but completely impacts your life now. And to, to use an illustration for this, uh, what John is saying is, imagine I come to you today and I'm here up front. And I just tell this story, right, that yesterday I, I was going to a friend's house and I decided to take my bike. And I'm going to my friend's house. I, I'm, at this moment, I'm going through the intersection, and I'm in the middle of it. I look to the left. I, I hear this loud noise, and it's this huge truck, 100 miles per hour, and just hits me right in the face. And, you know, good thing that, you know, I, I, I still made for dinner. I, I, I got back soon in time for dinner, and I'm here to preach, so, so that's a good thing, right? Would you, would you believe? I don't even have to take my jacket off. You don't have to look at anything else. You know that something of that magnitude would impact my life to a point where I wouldn't be here where I am right now if a, if a truck like that had hit me. John's point is the same. You cannot have seen the Son of God. You cannot have known the Son of God and stay in the life you're now. You don't understand. You don't, you don't know how great he is. You don't understand the power of his love and the power of his spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit that works in us, salvation. 
He comes and he regenerates. He chains who we are. There's a new nature, a new birth. And you cannot, in this new nature, remain in your sins. You cannot. You will not. And, and actually cannot. That's the word used later on in, in, in verse 10. Uh, sorry, verse 9. Uh, he says, um, his seeds abides in him. God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. This word cannot is a verb, uh, is the verb dunamai in, in Greek, and that's from where we get the word dynamite. It's this idea you have no power. There's no way you can resist the grace of God and, 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 and not change your life and not love righteousness if you're in contact with the one who is pure righteousness. That's the point made by John here. You cannot live a life of absolute disregard to the law if you know the Son. So, what is this new birth then? So, I want us to look, that's the last thing I want to do here today. Look at the new birth in verse 10. He mentions that twice. And then he mentions even this God's, God's seed involved in this new birth. So, so, what are these things? Well, um, when it comes to the new birth, uh, we need to uh, understand that the grace of God in us truly changes. And there are so many things to this picture of a new birth, but one of them is identity. A baby, babies don't just, they're not like carrot that's proud from the ground, but babies, of course, they're born into a family. They come in just by the fact that they are born, that means that they belong to a certain family, they belong to someone. And that change of identity then comes with a new birth. That's one thing to be said then, that you were identified now in a different family. You don't belong to the family that likes to lie and likes deceit. But more than that, something interesting that I actually learned studying for this this week is that with the new birth, we can say that comes also a sensibility to, to the world. And, and of course, the, these metaphors here are moving from something physical to something spiritual. So in the same way, think, imagine a baby. This is going to be, I'm warning you, the weird part of the sermon. <laughs> but I want you to imagine yourself in the womb as a baby, if you will. And it's all dark, and, and, and it's, it, it's, you may be able to hear something, but you're in this thing of water, and you know, even the sound may be a little fuzzy. And, and you, know, you may be able to feel things, but it's always that same, same gooey thing. Maybe there are doctors here, and they're like, you got the wrong picture here. But, but it, you know, whatever that is, I wanted to picture the contrast once that baby is born. That baby is born, and now, out of the sudden, there's light, and there's all kinds of color, and there's all kinds of sensations that you feel, and, and there are things that you can touch in different temperatures, and you look at all these weird people looking at you and smiling, and, and, and they're saying things in different tones, and, and it's, it's a new world. It's open to you. Would this baby ever go back to the womb? No, I just want to be back in my dark little cocoon. Some of us do that as a teenager later on in life. But the baby is just amazed by, by what's going on. And, and that's this, this new world, this new sensibility. And that's what happens to you as a Christian when you came to Christ. The new birth involves seeing things that you hadn't seen before. Your eyes are open. Your ears are open. Now you understand the Bible. And as we read today and sang Psalm 119, clearly that's what's going on in the heart of the psalmist. What a joy. 
I rejoice in your commandments. Give me more of your words and of your law because I need it. It's, it's more precious than gold and silver. It's better than honey. It's the best. Out of all perfections of the world that I have observed, no perfection compares to the perfection of your law. We see the, all that in Psalm 119. And that's exactly how this baby feels, this newborn Christian feels in this new world. Archibald Alexander Hodge, the 19th century Princeton professor, wrote this book, uh, Thoughts on Religious Experience. Thoughts on Religious Experience. And it's a rather interesting, it's, it's different than the normal theolo- theology book you're going to find out there uh, in many ways. And here's a, a, a quote from that book. He says, everyone, he, he's talking about the new birth, everyone in whom this divine experience is past, experiences new views of divine truth. The soul that sees, though it may not have discerned before, it now discerns in the truth of God a beauty and excellence of which had no conception till now. This is Hodge talking about this new sensibility of the new birth. There's this whole new world to the new birth. And it may not be directly related to what John is getting at here in chapter 3, but there's a third element of this new birth that I find really beautiful. Um, uh, for the ones of you who don't know, my fiance has 11 siblings, and the oldest just had her ninth child. And anyway, so lots of sisters, lots of children, and believe me, lots of st- stories about birth. And one of the things <laughs> that, listening to all these different stories, one of the things you notice is, it, it's very clear, and I think it's a beautiful part of this picture of the new birth. And, and Jesus makes that very clear in the new birth chapter in John 3, when John's talking to Nicodemus. The wind blows where he wants. You know, how can I go back to my mother's womb? Jesus' point is very clear. There's nothing you do. It, it's the Spirit's work. There, the baby does nothing. The baby, all these stories, believe me, I heard several stories of birth. None of them includes any baby doing any work. These babies look lazy. They're just there, and and they're just born, and and, and they come to this wonderful new state of, of experiencing the world apart from any works of their own. However, now going back to the stories, which I'm not sharing the stories with you. You, you can be, have peace on that. There is someone doing a lot of work so that that baby can be born. A lot of work. If anything, I, as a man, I would venture to say that maybe the closest to death many women will ever feel in their life as far as pain and suffering, it's giving birth. And of course, this is just a metaphor. You, you can't even compare that to what Christ did for us. But, but that's the metaphor we have. And God is giving us this gift of understanding a birth in that way. Look at all the pain, the suffering, the agony that takes for someone to receive life and life in abundance. That's the work of Christ. That's the gospel, even illustrated to us in nature, uh, in that sense, uh, by the perfect order of our Lord and, and, and Creator. So John appeals to this idea of the new birth saying, Again, it's impossible if you have received this new nature. Again, we, we are saved by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, and, and that's there. But, but that justification, that forensic stamp that we're right before God, 
comes in this bigger context of the new birth, which includes regeneration, adoption, a change of sensibility, a change of identity. All those things are packed together. They cannot be separated. And because of all that, no one can say, I've been justified. I don't have to do anything. I don't want to live for Christ, which is what we call antinomianism. And it has happened even after the Reformation. doesn't matter how careful the Reformers were to, to show the connection between all those things. Groups have come uh, after the Reformation said, oh, we're just faith by faith alone, so I can just do whatever I want. John is very clear. Let no one deceive you, little children. Those who practice lawlessness belong to the devil. Now, uh, in, in this big picture of the new birth, we have this element here of, the, of God's seed. And the word seed in Greek is the word sperma, which means seed in, in a generic way. So the seed of a tree, the seed of a plant. Uh, though I believe in, in, in this metaphor used by John here in, chapter, in verse 9, of chapter 3, uh, they all come together. It's the seed of God leading to a new birth as well. So what is the seed of God? Well, there, there are two possibilities here. The first one is that it is the word of God. We see this expression, uh, the Bible referring to the seed of God as God's word. An example, that will be First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Peter writes, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So that will be the first interpretation. You've been born of this imperishable seed, the word of God. Uh, James refers to that as well, and we see that in the parable of the sower and the seed. So several places, and I think an argument to that is the fact that when John mentions, he not only mentions the seed, but it remains in you. So if you go back to that parable, uh, several soils received the seed, but it remained in one of those seeds. So that would be the first option. But it could also mean the Spirit of God himself. And uh, we mentioned John 3, uh, when the Spirit of God is the one who comes and regenerates and gives the new birth, uh, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. But also uh, we see that in Ezekiel 36 in the Old Testament. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So um, either so either way, whether John is actually referring to the word that remains and abides, or if he's talking about the spirit that comes and changes, we know uh, by the whole counsel of God that those two things work together anyway. It's, it's the word of God with the spirit bringing life and life in abundance to the heart of the believer. And, and that's what uh, in Second Peter, Peter himself describes as us being partakers of the divine nature. Uh, that's all included in that big picture of this regeneration. Now we're adopted, we're, we're family uh, with our Father, our God. Little children, let no one deceive you. There are only two groups, those who practice lawlessness, those who belong to the kingdom of God. Little children, don't be deceived. Those two groups are completely opposed to each other. They have different leaders, and they are completely different, and their goal is to do exactly the opposite, where the son wants to destroy the works of the devil. And don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you. There's true power in the new birth. There's no hurt that cannot be uh, helped 
by the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no weakness that the Spirit cannot strengthen you. There's no uh, trauma or experience that the Spirit will not help you with or, or sin that, that's big enough that the blood of Christ cannot atone for. Uh, the work of Christ is real. Uh, it's, it may be partial. There is a sense in which John admits here that the, the final purification will come with his second appearing that we look forward to. And we even purify ourselves now as we wait for his second coming. That's true. We won't be delivered from the final presence of sin until the second come. But even now, though partial, there's actual power in the name of Jesus Christ. There's actual power that can actually help you. And if you depend, if you rely on Christ, if you humble yourself before God and you come to him in prayer, there's power to overcome your sins. You can do what is right. You can be delivered from addictions. You can stop committing that sin that you often commit. There's no dominion of that sin over you. You, you may fall here and there, but that sin has no dominion over you because the power of God is greater than the power of your flesh. And your flesh can always stand against the work of Christ in you. Um, to, to conclude, uh, I, I would like to turn now to get a little more practical as we come to this idea of how can then we, we deal with our sins as Christians. And I would like to go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And we'll conclude with this last section. I just would like to briefly point out uh, a couple of points of application here from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, in verses 27 through 30, Jesus gives us one, last, uh, one illustration here of how to deal with sin, and I think it will be helpful as we conclude our sermon today, dealing with this idea of obeying God's law and, and, and loving Christ. Jesus says, You have heard... That you were said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. These are very hard words. Uh, Jesus wasn't that old here, but he was blunt in that sense. And here are the things I want you to notice. The first one is we need to identify the idols of our hearts. Each one of us in this room sin different sins. The sin that I struggle with is different than the sin that you struggle with, which is different than the sin that maybe your spouse or your children struggle with. And we need to identify where they are. And this could be a whole new other sermon, but basically, what is that thing that if it's taken from you, you're angry and you're upset and it causes division in your relationships? Why are those things that you're not willing to compromise that can make you uh, uh, sin? for those things. Uh, another idea uh, an old pastor has said before is that um, the idol of your heart is that thing you think about when you're waiting on, for a bus. And I think that that illustration has lost its power a little bit because today we have so many things. We always have our phones on us and, and headphones and different things, so your mind is always somewhere. 
But his point is, when you're in that place, someone takes your phone away, and there's nothing for you to think about, you're just daydreaming, what are your dreams? You would imagine that in, in the place we live with this new sensibility of, of God's spiritual world, we would praise God and we would see his goodness and his grace everywhere. But normally, our mind tends to go to those, those idols that we have. And those are ways to look for those idols. But notice, secondly, that Jesus not only says you need to identify that thing, but we have to deal with the right cause of our sin. How many of us have tried to deal with a sin by doing something else? You know, I have this thing that I struggle with, but I can read my Bible twice tomorrow. And, and, and Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how good you are at work. It doesn't matter how good you are maybe as a father or in these different areas. If there is a sin here, it needs to be dealt with in that particular area. Cutting your right hand, and of course, let me make sure for the children in the room that these are... These are illustrations. Jesus is by no means saying you have to cut any part of your body. Uh, he's using this as an illustration to, to things that happen inside our hearts. And, and he's saying you have to deal with the right cause of that sin. Um, and thirdly and lastly, as we fight to sin, uh, to, to, as we fight the sin that it's in our lives, here's the encouragement Jesus is giving us here. Jesus is not just like a salesman who shows you the product, and just give you the good side of it. And, and tries, you know, it's all wonderful. There's no trouble. It's easy. No, Jesus is actually being very realistic. Jesus has never said that it's going to be easy. And that's why I think a lot of us struggle. Oh, just, I can't do it. And you say that because it's hard. And again, Jesus is using the picture of amputation, of cutting a part of your body. He's not trying to show to you that it's going to be easy. All the metaphors in the Bible fighting sin, pick up your cross. Die to yourself. None of those metaphors or illustrations demonstrate any, any sign that it's going to be easy to fight your sins. And yet he says, he gives us an encouragement. He says, it will be hard. You, there will be blood. It will be painful. Again, in a metaphorical way. But what is the other option? It's hell. We want to love our Lord and Savior. We want to obey him. And what the devil tries to do is show to us how much we will lose. That's where the devil focuses. There is going to be pain. Jesus is admitting that. And the devil comes to us and says, for someone who struggles with um, alcohol, you know, if, if you stop drinking, look how miserable your life is going to be. You're not going to be funny anymore. All your friends at the bar, what, what are you going to do with them? What are you going to do? Now for, your life is over. And that's what he's trying to do. And, and it's interesting here to use one last illustration today. Um, some of you may know that I have a younger brother. He may even be here for my wedding in a couple months. You may have an opportunity to meet him. Really nice guy. And he was born without one of his arms. Uh, he actually only has half of his arm. He only comes to here. And being born that way, I grew up in Brazil. It's very common to have... Uh, buffet ref, restaurants where you go, you, you bring your plate, and you serve yourself, and, and then you pay at the end. Very common. Most of the restaurants, at least growing up, were that way. And my brother growing up, without his little arm, he would put either a cup, like a glass, and, or a plate, and he would do everything in his arm, and he walks around, and he's, you know, moving, and sometimes even jumping and bouncing the cup, and people are always amazed by that, and he doesn't even notice. I, growing up with him, I wouldn't even, unless someone asked me, 
you know, what's wrong with your brother? And sometimes it would take me a while to click that he didn't have an arm because it's so normal. Now, if in a car accident going home today, I lose my arm, is it going to be that way? No, it's going to take a lot of work. I'm going to try to catch something and realize, oh, I don't have my arm anymore. And it's going to take a lot of time to adapt to that. And Jesus is saying, this is the picture of sin. You sin because you love your sin. You desire your sin. It's not easy. And it's going to take a lot of getting used to that. You need to change your life around. You need to do whatever it takes because you're going to crave that. You're going to go and it's natural for you to act as if that sin is part of your life. It's part of who you are now. Trust in the power of Christ. Trust that there is real power in the name of Christ and the power of the gospel to change your life. Trust in him. Obey his word. And he'll be faithful to you. That's the message of John to us here in chapter 3. Though, do not be deceived. Uh, trust in the power of the gospel to change your lives. And um, do it with confidence. And when you sin, remember we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the new birth. We know that None of that is fruit of our own works. We know that in Christ alone and because of all his efforts, because of all that he went through, humbling himself and living the perfect life, uh, a man of sorrows, he took upon himself our sins, and he did all that so that we could experience life and life in abundance. We thank you for the joy it is to belong to you. We thank you for the power of the gospel that, though partial in this life and yet actual, chains our lives and chains who we are. And we pray that this power will be in us as we go on with our lives, even this week. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.